Greetings to each one of you as we continue the series, This is Hope. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't stop and thank Brian Isbell for recording uh, the message today. He's been recording our online messages the last few weeks, editing them and then posting them online for you to see. He is our worship arts director for modern worship and appreciate him so much. It's just the two of us today, and we are practicing social distancing as we provide this message for you and your family. I want to thank you for your encouragement these past few Sundays. I've heard from many of you, and like many other churches, we believe that we may have more people watching online than we actually have had sitting in the seats when we were open. God is in control even when we don't understand his ways. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And as I record this message, I'm thankful for all that he's done for me. And one of the sweetest things he's done for me is to provide this wonderful family of faith we call First Baptist Church. You have been amazing these past few weeks. I, I could say 25 plus years, and that would be true also. But in the past few weeks, you've continued to be the church that gives itself away. You've served your neighbor. You've prayed. You've encouraged our staff. You've been faithful in your giving. You have shared your faith. You've been the church outside the walls of this building. Thank you. Thank you for being such a blessing to our community, our church family, and your staff. And speaking of staff, I want you to know how much I appreciate each one of them. Ministry staff, staff assistants, support staff, custodial staff. They are amazing, and they've been a great joy to me in the last few weeks. And I want to mention connect group leaders, discipleship leaders, our deacons, Zoom calls, phone calls, emails, texts, staying connected, looking for opportunities to minister and teaching. You have been amazing as well. Well, let's jump into the Word of God. Nehemiah's story is a story of rebuilding. The history of the world is a story of rebuilding. Biblical history includes Adam and Eve rebuilding their life after they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Noah's story includes rebuilding after the flood. Moses helped Israel rebuild life after the exodus from Egypt. Joshua led Israel to rebuild life in a brand new land, the promised land. And the book of Judges is story after story of Israel rebuilding their life after a season of disobedience and oppression because of their disobedience to God. We studied Gideon, one of those judges, last week. Now, David's life is a life of rebuilding from shepherd to soldier and from soldier to king. And in the New Testament, the disciples had to rebuild their life after the death, resurrection of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul rebuilt his life from church persecutor to church planter. World history includes more rebuilding projects than we can count. Japan, England, Germany, just to name a few, rebuilding after World War II. One of our global partners is Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Ethiopia had a season of rebuilding after Italy occupied the country from 1936 to 1941. They had another rebuilding after the last emperor, Haile Selassie, was thrown out. And then another rebuilding when communism was overthrown. U.S. history includes Reconstruction after the Revolutionary War, Reconstruction after the Civil War, and the Great Depression, which began in 1929. Before the rebuilding even started, it was exasperated by the Great Dust Bowls of the Southern Plains. 
The falling of the Twin Towers in New York City ushered in the need not only for rebuilding buildings, but for rebuilding security measures and economic systems. Hurricane Katrina in 2004 and Hurricane Harvey in 2017, they tied for the most damage estimates of $125 billion and required extensive rebuilding of personal lives and personal property. We will rebuild after COVID-19 as well. And we can find hope in our rebuilding. And I want to tell you the story of Nehemiah and we, where he found his hope. First of all, Nehemiah found hope in prayer. One of the first things I noticed when I look at the story of Nehemiah is that he woke up one day to discover a new reality that he didn't like. Just like you and I woke up and we discovered ourselves in the middle of quarantine with shelter-in-place orders from the governor. We understand it, but we don't like it. Uh, Nehemiah 1.3 said, They said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Nehemiah was living in exile. He and a large group of Jews were forced to leave Israel, and Nehemiah found himself living in the Persian city of Susa. He learned that the walls of Jerusalem had been broken, leaving the city's defense compromised. He learned that the gates had been burned, leaving access to the city coming and going very unorganized. He learned that the citizens of the city were greatly troubled and living in disgrace and discouragement. The reality was not pretty. And it reminds me of the reality we're living in today. Uh, our bodies have no walls of defense to COVID-19. The gates of entry, you know, that N95 mask might protect our breathing. Uh, they may not be burned down, but they are in short supply. And living in quarantine might cause you to feel disgraced and discouraged as well. Well, this new reality brought real grief to Nehemiah. Verse 4 says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. When you look at Nehemiah's prayer life, you'll find that he praises God as the God of heaven. Great and awe-inspiring are his exact words. He remembers that God is gracious covenant giver. He seeks God, asking God to see and hear the trouble of Israel. I know many of you have been moved to pray. Crying out to God in times like this should be natural to the believer. It should be natural to us each and every day, morning, noon, and night, especially in times of trouble. God knows what we're going through. And he expects us to cry out to him. And I hope you notice in the story that Nehemiah begins his prayer with praise for how great God is. It's important for us to recognize who we're speaking to when we cry out to the God of heaven. God doesn't need our praise as much as we need to praise him reminding us of how great he is. Immediately after the praise comes confession. Nehemiah confesses his own sin. He confesses the sin of his family, and he confesses the sin of his country. His new reality prompts him to deal with sin. 
And you may ask why? Well, our sin separates us from God. It hinders our prayer. Psalm 66, 18 reads, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. That's a clear statement that says unconfessed sins block our communication with God. What sin might we need to confess today? Well, I want to share with you six. This is not exhaustive, but I hope these six will open up your heart to God this morning for some, it may be selfish motives. For others, neglecting God's word. Some may be dealing with unforgiven, uh, an unforgiving heart. Some with family discord or unconfessed sin. Maybe it's doubt. If you are struggling with one of these or any other sin, the all-knowing, sovereign God already knows. Confess them. And open up the door of communication with God. Now, after confession, in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Nehemiah asked God to remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Now, God doesn't need to remember, right? He knows everything, and he has never reneged on a promise that he's made, much less forgotten a promise that he has made. Nehemiah is the one who needs to remember and as he remembers God's promises, it moves him to strengthen his faith and to remove his doubt and be motivated to trust God and obey. We are living in a new reality today. And Nehemiah's example calls us to cry out to God, to confess our sin to God, to remember his faithfulness, to remember his word, and to recommit to obedience to our Lord. Nehemiah truly found hope in prayer. In fact, he began with prayer. Second, Nehemiah, Nehemiah found hope in present resources. So these walls were broken down, the gates were burned, people were depressed, and Nehemiah was living in exile. Did he have any present resources to count on? Well, at the end of chapter 1, Nehemiah says something very interesting. He says, I was cupbearer for the king. Now, you could look at Nehemiah's circumstance with a negative viewpoint easily. He's exiled from homeland, separated from his own people, living in a foreign culture, unable to worship God in the temple in Jerusalem, living as a servant, risking his life every day as the front line of defense for the king. What does that mean? He was the cupbearer. His job was to guard the royal wine that would be served to the king and to taste the wine, not to make sure that the wine paired good with the meal that night, but to make sure the wine had not been poisoned to kill the king. Not a great job, right? It'd be like someone who's uh, told to go to the hospital and breathe the air and then get tested for COVID-19 and see if it's safe to go to the hospital. Not a good job. Not unless you look at it from God's perspective. Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king, which meant he was a high-ranking and greatly trusted person in the palace. And this position gave him the king's ear and perhaps even the king's heart. How do we know that? 
Nehemiah came into the king's presence one day after he had heard this bad news. And the king looked at him and said, Nehemiah, what's bothering you? I've never seen you look like this. In fact, I think you're depressed. What's going on? Yes, Nehemiah had the king's heart. And so that gave Nehemiah the opportunity to pour his heart out to the king. And when the king learned of the desperate situation in Jerusalem, he was allowed to return. And he was even given a letter that gave him safe passage on his trip. Kind of like being a designated essential worker today so you can travel to your job. And he was given a letter that allowed him to gather all the resources he needed for the rebuilding project. A blank check to Home Depot, if you please. Now, Nehemiah found hope in his position as a cupbearer and hope in the resources that God had provided. Chapter 2, verse 8 reads, And the king granted me what I ask. Why? For the good hand of God was upon me. Well, yes, the king authorized it. But Nehemiah realizes every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That's James 1.17. In Old Testament biblical times, Nehemiah understood every perfect gift comes from God. He was finding hope in his present resources. Number three, Nehemiah finds hope in due diligence. He did his homework, and his homework required a field trip. And I think many of us would probably sign up for some homework today if we could go on a field trip and get out of the house, a get-out-of-quarantine card, if you will. In fact, I think some of you might even sign up to be a chaperone on a youth trip. Now, please remember that the next time the student ministry recruits volunteers, right? Okay, back to Nehemiah. Chapter 2, verse 13 reads, I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Nehemiah began with a general inspection. He toured the city. He assessed the damage. He inventoried the need. He considered the skills required. He counted the cost. He anticipated the challenges, the roadblocks, the hurdles, and the opposition. And when he began the work, he knew that he had the best information possible from which to make a plan. Verse 17 reads, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come. Let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Nehemiah was clear. We are in trouble. He didn't sugarcoat it. He didn't put a spin on it to take the edge off of it. He was clear. We are in trouble. He was also urgent. The city lies in ruins with gates burned he didn't say the city might fall into disrepair he didn't say take your time no rush we can deal with it later if it's more obvious no he said this is urgent jerusalem the city we love lies in ruins right now right here it's time to act and he was compelling let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. he didn't say let's sit around and think about this take a vote on this wish it were not so no it is so the walls are broken, and we can and we must repair them. And then he was also a visionary that we may no longer suffer. 
Nehemiah didn't say we need to rebuild the wall so we can feel better about ourselves. He said if we rebuild the walls, we will end this season of suffering. He planted a vision in their heart. What's a vision? It is a picture of what isn't yet, but what can be in the future and what it would do for them if they would just make it happen. Now look at verse 18. And I told them the hand of God had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Nehemiah shared his faith in God, beginning with a story of how God was already working. And if you and I will just open up our eyes to what God is doing, we'll notice everywhere we go, God has already been there preparing the way. It may have sounded like this. So guys, I was minding my own business, making the best of what I could in exile, and God favor on me and gave me a job in the palace. I was eventually elevated to cupbearer for the king. He trusted me. And God gave me so much favor in his eyes that when I heard about the trouble in Jerusalem, he could see it on my face that something was wrong. And when I told him about you, my brothers, he said, you got to do something about it. Take some time off. Check it out. And God prodded me to ask him for a letter for travel and a letter for resources. And boom, he gave me everything I needed and everything we will need to make this happen. And with Nehemiah's clarity and urgency and vision and his testimony of God's work already in the people, they all said, yes, let's roll. Nehemiah found hope in this communication. Fourth, Nehemiah found hope despite the opposition. Every project worth doing is a project ripe for opposition. Such was the case with Nehemiah. Soon after plans were made to be rebuilding, Nehemiah faces the opposition. Chapter 4, 19 and 20 tell us, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us. And they said, What is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build, but you will have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So the enemy began taunting, intimidating, and threatening. You're stupid. We hate you. What do you think you're going to accomplish? You're rebelling against the king. First of all, the enemy doesn't have a plan to rebuild. And second, the enemy doesn't have a heart for rebuilding. Third, the enemy is jealous that Nehemiah may have an answer and the means, and they may lose the respect of the people and Nehemiah's respect uh, rise. So they begin with threats and intimidation. And when that doesn't work, they decided they better have a plan to derail the project. Chapter 4 tells us all about it. Listen to verses 8 and 9. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and we set a guard as protection against them day and night. Well, the next step was to fight. They plotted destruction. They recruited antagonists. They planned to infiltrate the ranks and destroy them from within. 
So how did it turn out for the opposition? Well, the Bible tells us that Nehemiah and his band of wall-building warriors prayed first. And then, after they prayed, they did what they could do. They stationed a guard. Verse 3, they put families behind the low sections of the wall, and the families had spears and swords and bows. That's verse 13. And then Nehemiah rallies the troops with a speech uh, that reminds me of a scene from Mel Gibson in The Patriot. He tells them, remember the great and awe-inspiring God? And he challenged him, fight for your countrymen, fight for your sons, fight for your daughters, fight for your wives, fight for your homes. Verse 14. So half the men did the work, and the other half held spears and shields and bows and armor. Laborers actually worked with uh, their, their tools of the trade in one hand and their swords in the other hand. They worked by day, and they, they had security guards all night long. Verse 23 says, The guards never even took off their clothes. Even as they bathed and they, they washed, they carried a weapon in their hand. Nehemiah. And Israel trusted God, and they did what they could do with all of their might. <clears throat> Nehemiah's story tells us that opposition can also come from within. Chapter 5 tells about some social justice issues where some Israelites were taking advantage of other Israelites during a period of famine. Just as we have heard reports of hoarding toilet paper, price gouging on essential goods, stealing medical equipment, or making profits on vulnerable people, the same, the very same happened during Nehemiah's leadership. And he called them out. He exposed their wrong and he challenged them to make it right. So where does that lead us today? We are in a period of distress with all signs leading to things getting worse before they get better. More illness, more death, more grief, more days of quarantine, more job insecurity, more world tension, and more family stress. If you can remember one thing this morning, remember this. Our God is a great and awe-inspiring Lord. He is the God of heaven who will grant us success. He is the gracious covenant maker. He hears and he sees our distress and he promises to gather us to himself if we trust and obey. How do we trust God? How do we push through our doubts and our fears? How do we find forgiveness in our sin? Well, the answer is in a name. The name is Jesus. The Bible tells us that there is one name under heaven. Acts 4 verse 12 reads, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that name is Jesus. I invite you to call on him today. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, you made a covenant with us. And we learned with experience that we just can't keep a covenant. We try. We try harder. We try our hardest. And we always come up short because of sin. But you loved us so much that you made a covenant with us in your son, Jesus Christ, who died on our behalf, who sacrificed himself to pay the penalty of our sin and put us in a right standing with you. Father, we don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. And we have trusted in many other things to bring about our own salvation and satisfaction. So thank you, Lord, for sending us Jesus, the only way. 
We believe he died on the cross for our sin. We believe you raised him from the grave on the third day. We believe he sits at your right hand in heaven and that he has prepared a place in heaven for those who call on his name. Father, draw us close to Jesus today, right now. Draw us so close that we see his perfection and in light of his perfection, we see our sin so clearly that we are repulsed by it and turn from it and ask your forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you watch this on your computer screen, below the viewing window, you will find a connect card button. I ask you to click on that today and connect with us. When you scroll through that, you'll see a next step section. The first choice is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Then be baptized. Another choice is to be a member of First Baptist Church. Another is to join a connect group. And then finally, live on mission during this season of social distancing. Anyone watching who doesn't have a personal relationship of Jesus can begin that journey today. And if you're not sure how to begin that, if you don't understand what God is asking you to do and what God has done for you in Jesus, would you give us a call here at the church, 770-887-2428. Our phones are monitored and we'll get a minister to connect with you to help you understand how you can begin that relationship with Jesus. Now, hopefully you're watching this with your family. So let me encourage you, dads, moms, brothers and sisters, talk to each other about your next step. Ask each other, what do you think your next step is? And would you fill out a connect card for each one in your family and check what their next step is as well? We would be honored to help your family and anyone in your family discover and navigate those next steps. Thank you for watching today. Thank you for praising God with us today. And I look forward to worshiping with you next Sunday, Easter Sunday, next week.